Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I feel like I have a big imagination. Mm-hmm. And I, as a young kid, obviously had an imagination. I think every single human on the planet has an imagination. But there, for me, it's always been culture and art and music and film that has inspired and increased and expanded my um, imagination and the capacity for that imagination to grow into sort of something quite positive, I think, because art, particularly the art of today's guest, can change people's lives and make them feel seen and bring people together and also reveal a kind of interior world, like a a more psychological state that often, um, you know, just walking down the street when you see people, sometimes they're, they're in their own world. And today's guest makes paintings that are so special because they present that kind of unconscious moment you know that the moment when you don't realize you're being looked at these very private worlds yeah and we are talking to her all the way from america and her work depicts black uh everyday people from america and it's very much about being american and and being an everyday you know person living in america right now and often these everyday people particularly the black uh, everyday people that that she's found and sourced in a way uh, almost a bit like a um scout you know looking for models somehow um you know on the street maybe it's on the subway maybe it's like i don't know in a diner like eating lunch but she spots people that that she could imagine being you know figures in in her paintings and i just love the way that that journey happens and then the paintings themselves become these historical artifacts in a way that will live on beyond all of our lifetimes and during our lifetime actually change the way that people see themselves because there's representation in galleries in museums because a lot of her paintings are now straight to museums as well which is uh, quite an unusual and extraordinary thing to happen in someone's lifetime I love that it's happening for her so we've been meaning to do this episode for about two whole years and finally we've we, we've done it and it's on the occasion of an amazing new exhibition that opens in October which is going to be during um, Freeze London and um, it's at Hauser and Worth Gallery and it opens in October and we'll run until the end of the year. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, 
Amy Sherald. <laughs> Hi, Amy. Hello. How are you doing? Hello, hello, hello. I'm happy to be here with you both. Oh, it's uh, so yeah, much. it's been two years, two years in the making, so we're thrilled as well. I'm in New York, and you're also in New York, right? Oh yeah, I'm right across the river. I'm looking at New York right now through my window here. How long have you been based in New York? Because you're not born there. No, I'm not. Um, and my my partner reminds me of that every time I tell him <laughs> to cut the TV off, and he's like cut it off you turn it off and i'm like we're from the south we cut stuff on and we cut it off and you have to cut it out um but <laughs> i moved here in uh in 2018 from baltimore where i had been for almost 15 years if not a year or two more and before that i was in georgia where i was born in atlanta where i went to college and was born in columbus georgia so i've just been making my way up the east coast mm. since i was born what is it about New York as a destination for you? And do you feel like this is not to say final destination? That sounds quite ominous. But do you feel like this is somewhere where you're going to be, you feel really settled and you feel really creative? I do feel really creative here. It was never a destination to me, uh, for me, because I, I realized shortly after grad school that had I moved up here, I would have never made it as an artist. I feel like it would have been to my detriment rather than to my benefit to be up here because so much of what you have to put your energy energy towards is is like about work having to pay for a studio having to pay for an apartment it's like when is there going to be time to be in the studio so i specifically cho- chose to stay in baltimore and make baltimore my office because my rent was four hundred dollars a month you know for my studio um i could work in a restaurant and make the money i needed to put all my energy towards making my work so new york was like a dream that I realized was like a false reality (laughs) that I couldn't exist in one, one day. I took a trip up here one day. I was at Pace Gallery for, um, I don't know whether you remember when he had the exhibition, it's been a long time where they were like playing cards over 10 years ago. And I went to the opening and I was standing around and I realized in that moment, like it's just me and a bunch of other artists in this room. Like nobody important is in this room. That's going to, change my life and like make my dreams come true. And I saw somebody go back through one of those like invisible doors that they have in the wall, you know, where it's no handle, you just kind of push. And I'm like, that's the room I need to be in. And I'm not in that room, like I'm wasting my time. So um, I just really started focusing on what was happening in the studio at that point. because I realized that if, if I did that, then the opportunity would find itself. So love brought me to New York, but not work. Right. Well, it's quite an inspiring story that you you have the wherewithal at that point to go, that's where I need to get to, but I'm going to keep funding my practice because that's what's important now rather than location. And you did that, you said, by waiting tables. So I guess your trajectory into the art world, because people looking at you now see you, you are an incredibly successful you know, barometer, like amazing artist that people are referencing. And, and as Rob said, you're in museum collections, but it's not been a smooth kind of trip into the art world from education straight into representation right it has not but looking back at that has that given you more tools for your practice you know it kept me in a really desperate place and I think that that was a good thing because I feel like I feel as if I feel as if had I gotten too comfortable I also would I wouldn't have strived so hard and so much for so long because like 
you know, you hit your 30s and it's like a different life after that. Like you want different things and it's really hard to stay focused and not give up. And then you hit your 40s and you're like, okay, this is some bullshit, you know, like what's really going on here? But um, I think that I just, I made sure that I wasn't comfortable. I made sure that I wasn't happy with where I was in my life on purpose. You know, I didn't want to be in a place where I could possibly just give up and stay there. So there was no, uh, there was no dog walkers. Dog walkers coming to pick up George Weasley. Oh. No, no, no. But the dogs is a, is a huge thing for me with you. The fact that you, uh, we might as well talk about it because we're going to keep the dogs in because this is genius. The fact that you have a dog Instagram <laughs> already makes me just feel like you're the most <laughs> perfect person ever. I, I do a really poor job of running it too. But yeah, okay, so. What was I saying before all this over. Yeah, making yourself uncomfortable. Oh yeah, so I, I put myself I, I put myself in a in a place where I couldn't give up because if I gave up, I don't know what else I would have done. Like I know I didn't want to be a witch for the rest of my life. And being a wine sommelier sounded like a good idea, but like would I have been able to pass the test? Like who knows, you know? So I really only gave myself one option. And I think that's something that's really important when it comes to having a dream and making it come true it's like it has to be your sole focus and like where does that self-belief come from because it's inspiring to hear and i'm sure many people listening will feel like they want to give up or they're not getting where they want to be at a certain time in their life what what is the how do you hold on to that self-belief through all that i don't know i think it's a healthy place you're you're kind of straddling how do i say this um i don't know like you kind of have to believe that you're better than you really are in a way, because if you look at reality and like just see everything in black and white, it may not it may not seem possible. So you, for me, like I almost had to have a false sense of self esteem <laughs> and um, a belief in myself that you know it's not really warranted at the time. You know, I mean, I still look back and I don't even know how I got into graduate school with the work that I had at the time, but I made it in and. I work the hardest. I think I'm just like a really hard worker and I'm, I'm a natural born fighter as well. Like I just don't have a weak constitution. I'm very comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think in order to pursue something that's not empirical, you have to be one of those people that's comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, Mm -hmm. that's really important. And then really, I don't know. I mean, I meditated every day. I manifested everything that I feel like I wanted in my life just by envisioning it. It really is true. Like people are like, how'd you do it? I'm like, I sat down every day and I saw myself in a white box with a concrete floor that was a gallery in New York City until it was so real that I just would like tear up. You know what I mean? Like I just would feel it. And um, then I would get up and start painting again. And actually talking about New York, I read somewhere that you didn't want to exhibit in New York until it was like the right time. So you kind of exhibited like loads of other places. You kind of built up your career. And then when the time was right, which meant you got a space where it was going to be like impactful and kind of... The manifestation. Yeah, the manifestation. But I even loved that, that kind of determination to make sure where your work is being seen is the right location for it as well. Yeah, there is a level of desperation. But then you also have to recognize that every, every opportunity isn't an opportunity. And that goes back to like me thinking that I was better than I was because like 
who was I? Like, nobody knew who I was, but I'm like, I want my first New York show to be like this. You know what I mean? And I think it, you know, one great thing about being a late bloomer is that you have the opportunity to, to watch other people's lives unfold. And if you're taking, if you're smart, you're taking notes, you know? And, um, you know, I've been a fly on a wall and, you know, heard conversations and, you know, I kind of slowly began to realize that, um, that first introduction to the New York art market is your most important first introduction ever, right? And if it's not done right, then you could end up being that, you know, boy or girl that everybody's already dated first. And so like, you kind of, you know what I'm saying? It's like- (laughs) Sloppy seconds, we call it, yeah. (laughs) Right, like there's a mystique, I think, that galleries are attracted to. I don't know, I really don't know, but it's, I I think there's a right way to go about it, it, and there's a wrong way to go about it. And um, I decided that that was the right way for me, was to like wait until it was going to be a big moment. And um, hope, I mean, I'm, I was hoping for that and I'm just like, you know, lucky that it worked out that way. Can we go back to um, Columbus, Georgia? Because I um, have spent the last week with um, two twins who grew up in Alabama, but on the kind of border with Columbus. And they are they from Phoenix City, Alabama? I can't remember where they're from now. Seal, Alabama, I think. So the artists I were with are called Jarrett and John Key, and they grew up in Seal, but they used to go across to Columbus um, to do their like theatre classes, their performance classes, their art lessons, all that kind of stuff. And when they heard I was interviewing you, they completely freaked out because they were like, we love her. Like we've heard how generous she is to like other artists who have come from Columbus. And apparently there's a young painter, I think recently moved to New York and you just had him in your studio or something. And they were like, they, they adore you anyway. And they were saying what an incredible place Columbus was. So I was, I was, I'd never even really thought much about Columbus before. And it's really interesting to me that so many great artists have come out of it. You know, if you think of Bo Bartlett, who I know inspired you and like yourself and all these other people. So um, can you talk a bit about... Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, big time. So can you speak a bit about what, you know, Columbus and why it's such a special creative place? I would never call it that. That's so funny. They call it that. (laughs) I was like, I can't wait to get out of here. Okay, that's um, interesting, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, I mean, but I was there in a different time. Like, so I was born in 1973, right? I'm almost 50 years old. So when I was growing up there, you know, it was a lot, it was a different city. It's, I think it's still a lot of the same city, like having just driven through there two days ago and seeing how all the development in the city is happening at the north of the city, like it's divided by Macon Road. And what's south of Macon Road is brown and black and there's just, They've almost given up on that side of the city and everything is happening up north, even though Fort Benning, which is one of the largest army bases in America, is like south of the city. So I have very mixed feelings about Columbus, Georgia. Um, it's, It's where I'm from and growing up in the deep south really influenced who I was as a person, how I thought about myself. And... I don't think I'd be making this work had I not been born there mm-hmm. um, and lived through those kinds of experiences and, you know, coming back and then realizing that I really didn't know who I was because I felt like I've been performing my whole life and trying to assimilate and make other people feel comfortable. Um, and then coming to New York and it's completely, it's culturally 
like a thousand percent different, right? It's like people are straightforward. It's just a different, two different worlds. And I like myself better up here than I do down there. Like I, I can't, um, I feel like I always project. I'm just like projecting on people when I'm down there. So like maybe it's different, but when I left, it wasn't very different. So I just think there's a certain kind of white person there that I'm sure they are there, but it's probably not as saturated as it was back in the seventies. You know what I mean? Mm, But I mean, my art teacher, Jerry Davis was my everything. And so she was like my art scene, right? From like kindergarten to 12th grade, this woman was like, (laughs) you know, my introduction to, to, to everything because there, you know, there wasn't much, there wasn't much going on there as far as arts is concerned. I mean, my, my mom and dad went to plays and my dad was really into jazz, but um, outside of the Columbus Museum, I didn't know much else. And I only went there once, you know. Um, this was on a school so, trip. Did she take you there? on? Yeah, she took us there on that school trip to see Bo Bartlett's um, exhibition. And after that, I didn't go to a museum again until I was in college. So it's an interesting place. But I know they, they've thrived there. Um, Tony, who is their friend, um, he's thrived there. But then you also hit a, you hit a ceiling where like you have to get out. You just kind of have to go. It's a small town. Like, you just kind of have to go. Yeah, you know? for sure, for sure. If you want to yeah. become what you want to become. Yeah. And that trip as a teenager to the Columbus Museum kind of ch- opened your mind to what art could be and that it could be an opportunity for you. Yeah, I didn't even know what it, you know, I just knew it was something I was always drawn to. I just didn't want to be, I wanted to be different. Like, I think that was my first attraction to it. You know, I always liked to draw because I was introverted and, you know, very shy and self-conscious. So being drawing and that kind of stuff I could do in my room by myself was like my own little piece of heaven. But um, outside of that, you know, being raised in a, in a small town like that, I was always looking at people like Cindy Lauper and Boyd George and like, <laughs> you know, these like punk rock kids. And I was like, these people are so cool because it was an expression of self that I had never really seen in real life. And so they were artists to me. And that's, you know, what I was um, striving for and just wanting to be cool. You know I mean? All these things like kind of, feed into each other in a way where, you know, like once you get older, you realize that being an mm-hmm. artist doesn't mean that you dress cool. It's, but when you're younger, it's like artists like have blue hair and they like, you know, they have piercings and tattoos. Did you have a time but when I, you felt like you had to dress like an artist parenthesis? Did you feel like I want, I, I need did. to be cool. I need to like assimilate a look for myself. I did. As soon as, as soon as I escaped my mother's grass <laughs> as soon as i left columbus georgia and landed in atlanta i swear within two months i had shaved my head i had a piercing i had a labray i had 80 bucks i went and got like a tattoo i'm like paying to get removed right now <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know i just needed to become who i who i wanted to be in my head you know and, and that's and that's part of the journey it's just like having the Having the courage to just be different because nobody was different where I was from. 
everything was black and white. Nobody was Jewish. Nobody was gay. Like it was just black and white people existing together and everybody was Christian. And you know what I mean? There wasn't a lot of, of, of um, diversity or variety and, and how to be a person. I totally relate to that. Like where I'm from in Essex, which is basically Jersey to Manhattan, I guess is a way of describing it is that as a gay man, I also, and as an an actor and obsessed with, you know, theater and art galleries, I couldn't be the person I needed to be or wanted desperately to be if I stayed at home. I had to get into London. That was no disrespect where I was from, but it just didn't, it, it was too containing. Like you said, you hit a ceiling and you're like, there's, well, I can see it's glass and there's all this other stuff going on. I've got to get over there. So I completely relate to that. And I think a lot of artists, creative people do have to leave where they're from to release their inner creativity. I always think of Detroit as well. Like if you think of certain places that were outside of the kind of, you know, New York City or Hollywood or LA or you know what I mean? Like the kind of the the big cities. Like Detroit was always a place where I saw loads of musicians coming out of and they almost had to like invent themselves even bigger than like the acts that would have come out straight out of New York. So if you think of like Iggy Pop or like Madonna or just different people, but even for me growing up in, in, in England, like Cyndi Lauper was such a visionary human like I just I loved everything about her um yeah yeah it's really interesting um but you also spent a lot of time in Panama no when you were growing up because I I read that 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 sort of had a big impact in the way that you see color and the way that you potentially like you know think about the world yeah well once I graduated from college and left Columbus behind you know I've, I've been gifted mentors throughout my life and so like for each stage practically. Um, so at um, my painting instructor at Spelman College was from Panama and he started an artist colony there. So I got to spend a lot of my summers there. And, um, you know, it was my, my, my introduction to the African diaspora. It was the second country that I got to visit. So in high school, we went to Mexico, but this was the first country that I was able to visit where there were... Um, black people there that, you know, had a different kind of experience than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I had this, this, this one moment when, because of where I, where I was from, everything was black and white. And, and we were, I think we were going to drive back into Panama city or something like that. But I was like, where are the black clubs at? And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, it's like their world, their world, and their identity was very different than my Southern identity. And that's, you know, it was like a real learning moment for me there. Um, but, you know, we did a lot of painting and everything is, you know, all the houses are painted different colors. Um, the artists that Arturo was working with that are from Portobello, Panama, you know, they're, they're men now, but they were, um, young children when we first visited and they're self-taught and they make these gorgeous paintings, these gorgeous portraits um, mm-hmm. of beautiful colors and broken mirror around the edges to ward off the evil spirits. I mean, it's a, it's a really magical place, but you're really consumed by um, the colors that you see in the village along with it. The fact that it sits in a port that's, um, you know, 
you're looking out into the ocean and you'll see a dolphin every now and then. And then there's this, you know, history of, of, um, of it being a slave port. And these, you know, my friends ended up there because their ancestors were able to, you know, fight off the Spaniards and like run into the jungle. And they, you know, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful legacy. And I, you know, I feel really lucky that I was able to spend time there, but it definitely, you know, when I think about my use of color and, um, and how I really came into thinking about it in that way, it was definitely from having the opportunity to spend time there. Have you always been drawn to the figure? Cause you said in your, when you were studying, you were, your work was very different. Has the figure always been present? Yeah, that's all I really know. I mean, I, I don't know anything else. Um, there was nothing else to know when I said I wanted to be an artist. It was like, artists paint people. That's all I really knew. Because I didn't know who Andy Warhol was or any of these other guys. So, But I think if I had a choice, I don't think I would change it. Because as, you know, as, as introverted as I am, it's a way for me to interact with people without actually like interacting with people. But I'm also an empath and I really, I'm always curious about the, you know, like the psychological makeup of, of different people and their stories and how they, how their narratives are developed and just, you know, who we are as individuals. I just think we're just really interesting. And I, I, for me, it's like my goal to capture that, you know, the psychology of each person that I paint with mm-hmm. my paintbrush. Well, I think people coming to your work will recognize many things or, or see many things, but predominantly for me, it's how well-dressed all of your people are. And also this very distinctive gray skin tone, which the characters have. Where, where did they come from and how important is fashion for you? The grisaille came from you know, it's just a process, like art making is a process. And I was postgraduate school pursuing a body of work, like trying to figure out the body of work that I was going to make for the rest of my life. And it was um, like a process of deduction, really. Like I had started to make paintings in grisaille before I placed, you know, the skin color what is grisaille for and people that are listening? Sorry, it's a it's a way of painting in grayscale, basically. I used to just say grayscale, and then people write about my work, and they're like grisaille. So I'm like, well, maybe I should say grisaille too. <laughs> but it's really just grayscale. I'm like, it's a bit sassier. Yeah, I like it. I'm not that fancy. Um, so yeah, it's really just grayscale, and I just thought that it looked really stunning. Like you know, once I finished my first piece like that, I just thought it looked really stunning with being surrounded by color. And, you know, I always tell the story of just having a fear in, in, in a way of, of painting the black figure and then just having, having the conversation around the work be marginalized because I didn't want to make, I wanted to try to produce something that was bigger than, than, than just that conversation. Um, and so, I, you know, I think looking back that that was part of the reason why I made that decision. Um, because even if I painted them purple, like they still be black people, it doesn't take away from, mm. you know, who we are, uh, our, 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 our skin color is always, it's just, that's just is what it is. But I think, you know, to look at a painting and that not be the first thing that you see, you know, 
could start a different kind of conversation. And the clothes. Mm-hmm. And the fashion. Yeah. Um, I mean, thinking about it, it was, um, I never really considered it fashion, but I'm thinking about like the, the first, like the first painting that I made that when I really understood like what I was doing with these and I think what the clothes bring into the work for me is just a, um, it's a way to separate these people from the crowd almost. And, you know, I've had some really wonderful opportunities to find pieces of clothing that like tell a story just by, um, what they have on them, like a house with a sweater with like houses on it or, you know, I did this one painting that had a lobster and a sun. I mean, those kind of things that are the kind of things that I look for because then the whole painting can be, can speak to different, speak to different things. Like you can have a conversation with the shirt or the person. It's like, but they're, but they're real items work. of clothing every time. Do you always have to work from, from life and with a real model or can you ever imagine these people and what they're wearing? No, I can't. Well, I mean, Sometimes I say I um, I see people that are already, you know, that are already in my imagination. But maybe I maybe I really don't have an imagination because I really like to work from life. Like I'm not one of those people that can like. I guess I could do it, but I never tried. I don't know. But I like to see somebody take a picture of them um, after I figure out how I want to dress them and. Um, and then, and then make the painting. I never was like a make believe, I guess there's a difference between like painting people that you meet and then people that you make up. I think for me, I have a, it feels more authentic for it to be a person that I have seen and touched and, and dressed than what is that process then? What is that process? Will you approach someone and go like, you look great. Can you put on this lobster sweater? Let me take a photograph. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've, actually, I've actually seen like clothing rails. Oh yeah, Rob like, in, wants, in one of Rob the wants documentaries. <laughs> yeah, but I, I love. I collect that. clothes I, now. Sort of I do. Yeah, yeah, I collect them because you never know. You know, if, if I find something I like it, then I have to get it. But I mean, I, I um, yeah, I normally just walk up to people. Sometimes it's really hard for me to do that, and uh, you know, I have to like take a deep breath. And then be like, okay, just like say hello. Um, but that's that's pretty much how it happens. Like I just, you know, see a person and I'm like, if I don't do this, I'm going to regret it because I've seen a person and not done it. And I like 10 years later, I'm still regretting not painting that person. Really? It's not like I make a whole bunch of paintings, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, but do you have like... I think it's, Sorry, but are you, are you then walking around permanently with your camera and are you always on work or can you like experience the world without thinking, oh, there's someone over there who'd be great for a painting. Give me five minutes. I'm just going to go and do this. You, you have your cup of coffee on your own. I just need to take a picture. Your, it, your, I mean, there, there must yeah. be a thing, I guess, for anybody, creative writers, whatever, you just feel like any moment you go, oh, that's an amazing line. That's a great scene. This is a great yeah. image. Does it disrupt that's how your, it is. That's how that it is, is how it is. Yeah, it's funny because my partner, Kevin, I was picking him up from the path station one day and he gets into the car and I lean over to give him a hug 
And I open my eyes and there's this guy leaning on the wall on the other side, you know, like through our window smoking a cigarette. And I'm like, I'll be right back. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, you didn't even kiss me yet. And uh, I just, I just like literally had to go get this guy. He ended up being the the guy in the painting with the lobster and the sun. Like it was, you know, he was, he was just perfect. But what's yeah, my my eyeballs are always on. Do you ever have people that uh, refuse or do you have to turn on the charm completely? Have you ever had moments where you're like, they, they step away from you and go, I'm not interested at all, lady? No. No, great. I had one person do that and she was like a young girl, like maybe 17, and she worked at the drugstore in my local neighborhood in Baltimore and she was just like, nah. I, I begged her for a year and change. Do you show people like, like mm-hmm. examples of your paintings and stuff? I do, yeah. Yeah. Yep. To kind of like show it them matter, that you're though. legit. Yeah. <laughs> really? like, she was not having it. Like, yeah. Oh. Do you work from sketches and then go into paintings? No, my sketches, my is um, what I'm shooting through the viewfinder. I've never been a sketcher, unfortunately. I used to get in trouble um, for not turning in my sketchbooks in college, but I don't find it fulfilling at all to sketch. I don't know why. I wish I did. Yeah, I get my camera and I spend an hour, maybe two hours with the model. And um, those are my sketches, like the, the 150 plus photographs that I take of this one person. Those are the sketches. And then I go through those and I, you know, look for these little details that I, you know, that I think are important. Um, and sometimes it can just be as small as you know, the way they're holding their mouth or whether, you know, their hand is positioned a certain way and like what kind of change of emotion that brings to the painting, um, little things like that. But the photograph is the sketch. I watched mm-hmm. a, a film of you working um, with a model that, that you, you met somewhere and it was Alice in Wonderland themed and it, she's holding a kind of um, a teacup and and in that film you were talking about how you really wanted her head to move a certain way and her shoulder to relax in a certain way and there was this idea of like somehow um I think the phrase was a relief from the political so somehow like the paintings themselves can allow a space for the black body to no longer you know solely be a political thing it it, it can be this 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 kind of relief and I, I found it so strong that that visual of this because you can really see it in that that her pose you know you know holding that that teacup and the final painting it's just got this dignity and this elegance but also this kind of uh mag- magical element to it a kind of dreamlike you know alice in wonderland kind of fantastical element well it's a competition um, winner as well that painting that was yes, uh, a, that was a big is. prize <laughs> it was the beginning of the beginning yeah um but can you speak a bit about that relief from the political because i I sort of loved that as a phrase, really. Yeah, it's, um, God, I did that one in like 2014 or 2015. And I think for me, that painting was really about letting go of that kind of self-awareness that, you know, I felt like I grew up with um, in the South or what I had to have or what my mom taught me to, how, how my mom taught me to be self-aware. And I think that goes back to the conversation about assimilation where um, you're watching yourself being watched. You know, I remember reading this 
a book by this writer named John Berger, and he he sees it as an attribute that women have, but I think we all have it. And he gave an example of a woman getting up in a restaurant where you know she's going out to dinner and she's dressed up and she's walking to the restroom. And when you're walking with your heels and everything, like you have a camera in your mind that's playing back what you think other people are seeing when they look at you. And I think like, you know, moving through the world as a, as a, a black person can feel that way sometimes. Less, like I said, I feel differently about myself in New York. And that's one of the things that I don't really think about up here that I think about down there because I know that black people, I mean, that white people see black differently down there. And I think their interactions with me are based on preconceived notions that I automatically feel like I have to prove them to be different than what they think, right? So that one, that unsuppressed deliverance, which is the parenthetical title, is what I was thinking about when I was, when I came up with that idea for, for that piece. I think that's, it brought me back to that time in my life when I was living in Columbus. So this was a National Portrait Gallery competition winner in 2016. And this, you were saying, was the beginning of the beginning. It felt like for you, and it financially gave you uh, a boost. And it also probably gave you uh, an ego boost. And it gave you a self-esteem boost. And all of these things that every artist is looking for. Mm -hmm. Did you feel it at the time? Like, okay, we're off, strap yourselves in. Yeah, I, you know... I was at a precipice at that point where I knew I needed, you know, I had finally quit waiting tables and I was like, you know, living off of little or nothing. And I knew I needed that next breakthrough to happen, but I didn't know how it was going to happen. And um, it was exactly that, you know, like you're falling into darkness and then all of a sudden the next thing comes and like lifts you up and then you're like, okay, like this still is a possibility. Like I can still do this. So it was a financial boost because I literally didn't have any money like <laughs> at that time, you know? Um, and I knew I needed all $25,000 to like pay back my rent because I hadn't paid my rent in three months. Um, but I was also kind of like in an artist residency, so they weren't going to kick you out, but there was pressure, you know, yeah, my rent was like 700 bucks a month, but it is a residency, right? So it's like they're giving you below market price rent for and 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 a live workspace. And so I think they, you know, they worked with me because they felt like I was going to be doing something. <laughs> so it 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 just worked out. Like I already had all the math done on like what I was going to do if I won $25,000, 10,000, 5,000, 1,000 whatever. And um I really wasn't expecting it to happen to be honest. Like it just wasn't on my radar that I would even, you know, you apply to these obligatory things like these portrait competitions and whatnot, because it's just what you do. You know, you have a list of things that you apply to every year, most painters, and that was just one of them. And I, rem I remember bitching about having to spend $50 on doing it because I was like, this is like a waste of my money. Like they're making all this money because all these artists are going to supply are going to apply and like, you know, blah, 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 blah. But it was the best $50 I ever spent. In my and that life. went into the National Portrait Gallery collection by winning the competition? It is um, not, who, who has that painting? So no, my, um, one of my very close friends, her father bought that painting like before I even applied to the competition. So it, 
belongs to the North Carolina Museum of Art. Like they they donated it to that museum. Oh, nice. oh wow! But the you know the reward for um, winning that competition is a commission by the National Portrait Gallery. So that's like they're paying you twenty five thousand dollars to do this commission. But um, mine my commission ended up being Michelle Obama. Well, let's which was, talk about which that. Which was unexpected too. Like I was like, you know, I, mean, I was like, I'm going to paint Colin Powell. I want to paint Serena Williams and Venus. Like I already had this whole idea of like what this painting was going to look like with them on this tennis court and the whole nine. Um, but that wasn't in the stars. So it, this was literally a year later, this came in and you were, like personally selected by the Obamas and you had a choice when you went in to meet them that you could choose either to paint the first lady or the former president and you went straight to the first lady no disrespect I want to yeah. paint you Michelle <laughs> what was I mean what was that process like and also I've also read that you do work from photography but but oil paints are not allowed in the White House this is something that Sharon Sprung who's just done a painting now said that you're not allowed to take them in so you have to be an artist that is able to work from photography yeah it was a it was a fascinating experience I mean they told me casually that they had submitted my name along with like 20 other artists for the competition and I was like cool 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 <laughs> um, didn't really think of it, and then they're like, "Oh, by the way, you got shortlisted." I'm like, "Great, great, great, great." And then they're like, "Okay, so actually, they want you to come to the White House because they're going to interview all five of you in the Oval Office." And I'm like, "Okay, good, good, okay." And I was, I really didn't know what to think. I mean, I, yeah, I didn't know what to think. I just, you know, I was in D.C. and in true Amy fashion, I was like five minutes late for the meeting like who does that oh no 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 one of my advices. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I got there and um, was waiting to be called in because the other artists had gone a, the, ahead of me. And when I walked in, Brock walked towards me and he's like, you know, nice to meet you. And I'm like, it's almost like a shock to see somebody that you've only seen. I've seen other people though. I've seen other people in real life that I've seen on television, but something about seeing President Obama was like completely different. And you know, I blame it on the lights also in the Oval Office because it's backlit around the crown molding and it's just really bright compared to the rest of the White House, which is, it's, you know, this kind of light that makes everything look dingy, at least in the waiting room where we were, because I guess mm -hmm. it was like fluorescent and yellow. But um, I, I've never frozen before in my life, but I froze for about three seconds because I felt like I couldn't tell whether I was like, this was really happening or was it like not happening? And I was like dreaming that it was happening. And then I snapped out of it and he made this joke. He says, you know, you look like you got the memo. And I'm like, memo, 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 like what, you know? And I, I didn't realize that we all had on the same color. Like we all woke up that morning and decided to put on toast. So I'm like, you know, got that like 35 seconds too late, you know? <laughs> um, 
But yeah, we had a great conversation and, you know, I think I walked in there very differently than I would have in any other situation involving any other president because it was the first black president and first lady. And so there's a different kind, there's a different sense of ownership uh, and belonging that you have because of that. Um, and I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like I needed to be self-conscious because, you know, there's also a, a, a knowing that they have too yeah. of you, you know? So it, it felt really great to experience that in the white house, in a place like the Oval, you know, it, that's, the history of the White House is, is you know, just as Michelle said, it was built by slaves. So it was just a really once in a lifetime, even if I hadn't gotten the commission, like just having that opportunity to sit down and chat with him was was good enough. Um, but I, I don't, you know, I don't feel like, I, I didn't feel like I had come that far not to get it either. So, But you knew you wanted um, to paint Michelle over Barack. I did. I mean, when they approached me, it was about Michelle. Um, so I didn't really realize I was being interviewed for both, but she was always my focus anyway. And then while we were having conversations, um, Brock had asked me a couple of questions. You know, he's like, well, how would you paint me? And I'm like, actually, I have no idea because I didn't even think about you as a model in my head, you know. Um, but Michelle was like, no, don't. With, this is good right here. Like this is good. You know, so she, it's <laughs> <laughs> just like, this is my girl. Yeah. And then I found out I got it two, three months later. So you were not in an audition process with the other artists in the waiting room. What, I mean, were we, you all- they, 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 they didn't want us to know who each other. So I didn't know that the other artist was leaving. Ah. Um, I didn't see them when they were leaving. Do you yeah, know I who they know are Sharon. now? Yeah. Well, no. Now I know who that one was. And I guess I can't say it still. I'll tell you off after this conversation. I had never Everyone met Everyone listening is so frustrated <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's a talk um, exclusive. Because everything about this thing was so secretive. Like Sharon talks about having to keep that secret for six years. I have no idea how it worked out. We only had to keep it for a year and a half, and the donors were so excited that one of the donors leaked it before it was, oh. you know, it was supposed to be leaked like the day before the unveiling, and it got leaked, what, like four months before, something oh. like that. So um, it's crazy that six years later, they're just like, you know, here's Sharon Sprung, and like nobody knew about it because my mom was telling people. I mean, I told three people, but my mom was telling like, all of her friends and luckily like you know they're in columbus so it's like who are they going to tell but um there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and zepbound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. 
Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Yeah. Amazing. Well, so Sharon Sprung and Robert McCurdy have done the official White House portraits, which, as you were saying, took six years to get in there because the former administration of Trump did not want the portraits in the White House and they had to be kept secret for that long. And as you said, that is a game changing moment in your career. Absolutely. That painting and and for them to deny the artists and also, you know, the representation within the White House of that time just just speaks volumes for, you know, their ethics and morals. But it was insane. It was insane. And to think that if he had gotten in, if he was voted in another four years, like it would have been another four years. Like, I don't know what they would have done. Maybe they would have done something differently, but that must have been really frustrating for them. I remember the first time I saw the portrait that you did of Michelle and just thinking I'd never seen her in that way before, because Mm. in a way, because, because your usual subjects are everyday people, you know, people who, you know, work around the corner in a shop or, you know, just are everyday people. Like it sort of for the first time made me see her in a really personal way, in a way that was kind of unguarded and like, and almost like a friend or something, you know, like, and I've always loved her, but I've always kind of had her up on a pedestal with someone like, I don't know, Princess Diana or something, you know, like, like she's kind of dreamlike to me, but your portrait, Mm. of course, she's dignified, elegant, you know, stunning in it, but there's a friendliness, a kind of openness, a kindness, a gentleness, which I just think, you know, is unique to the way that you are able to portray people in your paintings. Like, was that something you were really obviously thinking about? I really was because I wanted, I wanted not to give the world um, an image that they had already seen before. And then also like who you, that energy that you pick up from her in the portrait is who she really is in real life, you know, um, yeah. not, not on the world stage. Um, she's, you know, not, I mean, she kind of is like an everyday person, right? Like she married Barack Obama. He ended up being president, but, you know, she's extraordinary in her own right. But when you meet her and you're around her, you know, she's like, I'm just Michelle from the South side. And that's exactly who, who I wanted to capture. Mm. Well, the original title was uh, Michelle LaVon Robinson Obama. Uh, and then it, it changed to uh, First Lady Michelle Obama. But th- again, that, I guess that is you channeling through the titling that she is, you know, Michelle from where she's from. Yeah. The National Portrait Gallery um, recorded unprecedented public response. Uh, it had doubled the attendance figures uh, when the portrait was there. People were queuing around the block to get in to see the portrait. What was that moment like for you? And did you feel then in that moment, oh, I might have arrived now. This is, you know, we're off. Yeah. Um, or are you still processing it, was, it now? I mean, it's such a huge thing and it still is. After the National Portrait Gallery competition and like winning that and then having my first solo show at um, my first gallery in Chicago less than a year later, and then having this like waiting list, which is like makes you feel really hopeful about your career. And then having the portrait unveiled and that kind of what I call like a crossover boost because it was, wasn't, you know, that portrait isn't 
exactly about the art world and the things that happen in it, but it's about, you know, her and Barack and like what they mean to not only Americans, but, you know, people that live all over the world. Like I got emails from Italy and like all these different places um, where, you know, they've become emotionally invested in who they are and what they Mm. represent. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was really, for me, like the first 72 hours was like just ridden with anxiety kind of because you have to prepare yourself for um, not only the praise, but the criticism mm. and was there criticism? There was some, yeah, because a lot of people didn't understand why she was gray, you know? And I'm like, did you not see like, you know, it's like, I, I was at my house this past weekend because I was there with Annie Leibovitz and she was photographing me and we were having a conversation about like the Simone Biles cover and how the image is like, she kind of darkens her images. And I'm like, you know, there was this big uproar and I'm like, I guess nobody like looked at the past 20 years of your work, you know, but it's the same thing. It's like, this is what I do. She knew what I did, which is why she chose me. Like there's a bigger, there's a bigger conversation to be had here about, about this. And that was really enthralling at the same time, because so many people that weren't interested in art became interested, had opinions and were Mm. engaging and wanted to see it. And I got like emails that were like, I hate it. And then one, one woman emailed me that she hated it. And then two months later, she actually got to see it in person. And she was like, Oh my God, it made me cry. It's so beautiful. And you, because you can't really look at a painting on a, on a, on social media or on the internet Mm -hmm. and like get the full grasp of like what it is the artist is trying to portray it's It's a scale as well this is this is a a, like a 1.8 meter by 1.5 meter portrait you don't get that from an image on your iphone do you know what i mean or or from a newspaper so you do need to stand in front of i always remember the the video as well because there was a video unveiling where they kind of you know took the cloth off the painting and it felt so theatrical in a way and it's such an unusual way to like first see a painting that even that moment you sort of judge something quite harshly or or quite positively you'd forgotten super immediately like as you'd forgotten what it looked like i think i read you saying that when you saw it in front of you you were like oh that's not how I remembered it. <laughs> it's like, that's how I felt when I saw it at the Brooklyn Museum because I hadn't seen it in so long um, that I got to see it again for the first time. And, you know, I'm oftentimes self-deprecating. And so when I say this, I'm not like saying it like, I think I probably should be saying it that way, like Issa Rae. But I was like, wow, this really is a good painting. Like I was kind of surprised, you know, like like pleasantly mm. surprised that mm. I'm like, this is, it's got it's got something there that's mm. special about it. Um, but yeah, when it, when, when it was first unveiled, yeah, it was, I don't know. I just wanted to run to the bathroom. Like I've always want to run to the bathroom, but, um, somebody, somebody got a, a screenshot of it when there was like a glare over it. And then like that went around Twitter and everybody's like, it look, doesn't look like her. It looks like Sasha or somebody or Malia. And I was like, there's a glare on the painting. Like you can't even really see it. So that was like my 24 hour nightmare was like the fact that somebody posted a picture of it with a glare on it where you couldn't even really see her oh, face at no. all. And then people started talking about it. You had a great response to the public, uh, the, the negativity where you said that some people like their poetry to rhyme and some people don't. 
and I've actually written yeah. that down as one of like my mantras. I've I've a list of mantras <laughs> of people, and I think that is such a beautiful way of just looking at anything, you know, yeah. because you're never going to please everyone. No, you're not. And if everybody likes it, I feel like something's wrong with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. not a cartoon. Like this is real life stuff. You know what I mean? So. I think the fact that people wanted to have conversations about it and were debating about whether they like gray skin or brown skin or what the gray skin did or did not signify or whether it allowed her to be allowed her to be black or took away her blackness, you know, um, all those things are 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 really great. And I think that's what makes a, a, a great piece of art. It's like you can form opinions and have different opinions about it because that's the complexity of the work it's, you know yeah I know that since that moment you've you've had solo exhibitions at places like Hauser and Worth and you've had huge crowds attend and I, no, I noted that the the crowds you know that came to your show in in New York were incredibly diverse um, groups of people as well and I mean like literally people queuing around the block to see your shows um, and a lot of people including myself who have seen your work in person it that they're quite kind of awe-inspiring paintings simply because of a formal kind of uh, quality of skill, like the actual, the masterfulness of your brushstrokes, of the way you paint. How has that developed like over the whole of your life, I, I guess? Because th there seems to be this, this kind of aspiration to, you know, being the greatest. Like, because I, I honestly think the way you paint is, is up there with, you know, art history. Like, like it's just... It's awe-inspiring when you see it in real the, life. You're part of the canon. Yeah, Amy. but you are. But but yeah. that's but that's partly because of the skill, though. Do you see what I mean? It's not it's not just the conceptual ideas behind it and the the political resonance and how important all all all, the, all of the meaning is. The actual skill behind it, like, is is that something that you you always had a natural sort of focus towards, like trying to be the best you could possibly be? <laughs> I did. I mean, it's you know, I I always yeah. I mean you work really hard at stuff and you get better at it. And I just, you know, it's that 10,000 hours thing where I spent 10,000 hours and, you know, you finally kind of master what it is that you're doing. Um, I have to say, I, I, sometimes I like the way that I painted better 10 years ago than I, I do now because it was a little more stylized because my skill level was like not quite there yet, but I, when I look back at it, I think it's really interesting. Um, and when I was preparing for this show coming up in London, you know, everything is like really realistic and that's always been one of my goals, but I kind of missed that in between stage where you're good, but not great. Cause I think something was, I, I really liked, you know, the way the paintings felt then for some reason. Mm. Um, not that these aren't, you know, not that these suck or anything, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, there's something about that, that I miss that I had a conversation with myself about when I was making this work. Um, but that's just, I think that's just the way process happens and growth happens. And, you know, as you journey through life as an artist. How long so, does each painting take and how many do you work on at once? I work on several at once now. It used to just be one at a time and it would take me like one to two months, depending on the size and like the, you know, whether I was painting plaid or like just a solid color. The bigger pieces, like I had two motorcycles in this exhibition and it almost, it took almost a whole year. 
to finish those. Wow. Because, you know, lots of detail and just, yeah, it just takes time, like layers of paint and all that stuff. So, and sometimes you want to step away for a minute to look, you know, sometimes I need to like turn the painting around for a couple of weeks and then turn it back around so that I can see it with fresh eyes again. Or if I don't have time to do that, I'll bring somebody, I'll bring a friend into the studio and just for her to like, or him to point out mistakes or, you know, tell me things that they think I should fix or work on or whatnot. Where was the photograph for the bike from? Did you find that yourself or was that? I found two guys. One of them, his name is Willie Wayne. I found him on Instagram. And then the other guy's name is Chad C5. And they're both, um, Willie Wayne is from Baltimore. And he rides, I guess everybody is a 12 o'clock boy that's in Baltimore. I'm not sure. But what and then mean? 12 o'clock boys are a group of bikers that started in Baltimore um, probably 15, 20 years ago. Um, I got to speak to one of the original members when I first had the idea for this painting about four years ago. And he's my age. He doesn't ride anymore. Oh, he rides like a Harley now. So I'm assuming that this started when he was a teenager. So let's, let's just say 20 plus years ago in Baltimore. And when you ride at 12 o'clock, it means that you're popped up on a wheelie on one wheel and you're riding straight up and down. When I first moved to Baltimore for grad school, I saw these guys riding around and I was like, wow. Like I was just like, couldn't wait to see them again, you know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of they're, they're considered a nuisance. I don't, I don't really see it that way. I think it's just crazy that they taught themselves this skill that you see, like, you know, sometimes you see like 12 year olds, like riding a bike up the street with these guys. Like that part is a little scary, but, but they're, but they're doing it, you know? And it's like, it's a really, um, you know, and it's an expression of freedom and, and an escape at the same time from, mm-hmm. I think, just everyday life of everyday life in Baltimore mm-hmm. in you know, wherever they live in Baltimore in Sandtown or East Baltimore, or West Baltimore. Um, but here I know recently mayor Adams, like crushed like 500 bikes on the news. He like confiscated them and like a bulldozer drove over them. Um, oh so they're really trying to shut them down. And I think, because I spent so much time in Baltimore and it's so near and dear to my heart, I wanted to mortalize these guys and mm. make sure that, you know, that part of American culture is also a part of art history. Mm. And, and, you know, I mean, I mean, I was also thinking about like paintings of men on horses and like these guys on their motorcycles and the symbolism um, comparing those, those two ways of of being in portraiture but yeah I've been wanting to do this painting for five years so I'm really excited to to put it out in the world and really proud of them and one of the the lead images from the forthcoming show in London is a couple who are in an embrace um this kind of very romantic kind of um you know kiss and it really struck me because a lot of your paintings, as as a lot of portraits in history are, you often have that that gaze, you know, like straight to the eyes. And I know that you even like position your canvases in your exhibition so that the eyes kind of meet the eyes of the viewer. Um, and I know that installation kind of um, technique is really important. But can you speak a bit about making that particular painting, this sailor like kissing 
kissing um, his loved one, um, where they're not, um, you know, looking into the cam, looking out of the canvas. Instead, they're just looking at each other or, or with their eyes closed. Yeah, yeah. I think for me that painting. Um, well, one, it would. Can you imagine how creepy it would look if they were looking at you? And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 true. Less romantic. <laughs> that would be weird. Or one of them but... has their eyes open, the other one doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, <laughs> you know, when you think about the gay kiss, I think gay kissing should be normalized. And I think this is a great way to pursue that. You know, I think um, it's such a, you know, people get kicked out of bars, like men kiss in bars. And then all of a sudden, you know, people that are okay with men being gay are all of a sudden not okay with them, you know, being affectionate towards one another and they're policing, you know, love between two people. And I think that's just crazy. Um, and so, no, they're not looking at you, but you have to look at them in mm. this passionate, loving, intimate moment. Um, and there's so many kisses, you know, historically speaking, outside of Gustav Klimt, um, that it just it just seemed like a like a great addition to my body of work. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, with the conversations that we're having now around um you know, just the right to, to, to be married and, you know, commit yourself to your loved one in a way where you can still have access to them when you need to, because that's what technically marriage is about. This is like mm. paperwork. Um, Did you find this but, couple, like, were they a couple or were they two men that you kind of cast and put into place? Yeah, these, these two I cast and put them into place. I wasn't sure. I mean, the luck of me finding like two men that would be comfortable kissing each other. Um, I just wanted to be able to like choose exactly who I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I used a casting agent for that, for them. Oh, wow. And they were perfect. Like they were perfect together. They were perfect for each other. I'm like, you guys should date. Like, now they're together. Yeah. Now they're together. That's hilarious. Super hot. That would be amazing if you actually match made like this couple, but immortalized them already. And then they yeah. go on to have a relationship. And these paintings form part of a show that you've got at Hauser and Worth, and it's taken in London during Freeze London in October, and it's taken uh, both the spaces and Savile Row. So there's two huge gallery spaces that you're taking over. Uh, the title is called The World We Make, and there's also going to be a, a, a beautiful monograph that's going to be published at the same time. And this is your first European exhibition. How is it feeling like for you right now, knowing that this is all going to be happening in a month's time? It's really exciting. You know, life happens so fast that sometimes you kind of miss the moment to celebrate and just recognize and sit with your accomplishments. You know, I had a second, like literally a second yesterday where I was waiting for some bread to toast. And I, you know, just for a second, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm, I just turned 49 and you know, this is happening. Like I'll be 50 next year, which for me feels like old. Like, <laughs> And you have but, to make your own you know, toast. You were like, this, this I, shouldn't <laughs> be where I'm at now. Someone should be doing this for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's exciting and it's really meaningful. And, you know, it's a dream come true. And I just feel really lucky um, that you know, this is my life and I get to make these paintings and put them out in the world and hopefully make the world a better place than it was when I was born into it, um, mm. you know, because of it, because of the work. So I'm excited. I really am. I, I was really thinking that, 
young painters or young artists who see the show are going to be so inspired because even in that portrait of the gay couple kissing um just the detail in the in the trousers like in the um pants fashion, sorry, fashion in, in america you call them pants. no but it's the it's the detail like the detailing of the actual painting of mm. the turnover like on the on the trousers like it's so well painted it's just like exquisite i want it like i want to like hug it um but i just think <laughs> i think it's going to be a brilliant show for people to kind of realize that you can do anything you want in life like you know the potential within all of us to for greatness and for doing positive things to create change you know it is it is possible like you know even the fact that recently i know you donated a million dollars to the university of louisville and like uh you know you you sold a portrait that you did of brianna taylor and just the significance of moments like that you know that you've been able to you know genuinely sort of socially help other people you know through your creativity from something that you've just started by like taking a brush and yeah. paint and can you speak a tiny bit about that painting and, and also that 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 donation? Yeah. I mean that things like like being able to donate, you know, um, that money to the University of Louisville for scholarships and fellowships, it's like those are really my dreams come true. Like those are the things that, you know, if if I can't do that, then why am I doing it at all? You know? So mm. um can't wait to do more. I can't wait to, you know, do, I just, I don't know. Like I, I always tell the story about Oprah Winfrey, like giving away cars. <laughs> and I was like, that's the only time in my life I've ever been jealous of somebody because I want, I want to be able to do things like that. And that was one of the reasons, like if I ever felt shitty on a day, it would be because, you know, my mom maybe needed something and I was like 35 and I was waiting tables I felt like at that age, I should be able to do for my family and provide in ways that I didn't have the agency or capacity to do because I didn't have any money. And so, um, you know, they say when you, when you acquire wealth, you kind of become more of who you already are. And so um, that's something that I look forward to doing. But so Brianna Taylor, um, her painting, was one of the most special paintings I've ever done outside of Michelle. I think um, I'm so happy that I had the opportunity to participate in that moment um, and codify, you know, like the year 2020 in a mm, real yeah. way, mm. historically speaking, but mm. we can look back at that and um, remember the complexity of the moment and yeah, I, the you know, for, for most of that year, I wanted to get out and do something, but I couldn't because I'm immune suppressed because I had a heart transplant and I was just nervous about getting COVID. There weren't any vaccines yet. And so, you know, I stayed home and I played it safe, but um, I feel lucky that my art was the opportunity to participate in a, in, in a bigger way outside of um, you know, walking in the streets and yes. yeah. Well, it was on the cover of the September issue of Vanity Fair. So, and it was yeah. obviously shared widely across social media and news everywhere. And, and not only did you donate this money, it, it established two programs in Brianna Taylor's name forever. Yeah. And that just shows the generosity that you have. And that's, 
beautiful. So yeah. thank you yeah. for doing that. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I want to ask about I want to ask about like the 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 auction situation that happens now that happens commercially with many artists is and especially for you where work does suddenly end up at auction and sells for mm-hmm. considerable amounts of money. And I know that you've been quite vocal about how that makes you feel and many artists are going through that and this you know the fact that artists don't get any resale money from this they don't benefit from that and Mm. how is that for you at the moment and is this the conversations that you have with a gallery about placing work I know lots of works go straight to institutions which is amazing but when they enter private collections are these things that you didn't ever think you'd have to consider and are now a big consideration for you yeah I always thought about auctions um even before I had a gallery or, you know, when I was like five paintings deep into like, you know, making these, these grayscale paintings. Um, Cause I remember needing money and wanting to sell something, but then also having that, you know, kind of dream in the back of my head that was gonna become a reality. And I was really careful about that and not just um you know just selling work just because i can you know what i mean you you know i always tell my students it's like sell enough so that you can make more work but you have to remember that if you're just out there you know selling paintings for three thousand four thousand dollars early on in your career because you can and it's exciting and it feels really good. But if you make it big, it's going to be, I feel like it's going to be your worst nightmare. You know what I mean? Cause um, once a tipping point is created, like the sale of the baiters was kind of like a tipping point that was created when it sold for 4.2 million or whatever it was. Um, at that point I was like, just waiting, you know, cause I was like the next one is coming. And I knew, it was going to be from like collectors early on who like kind of technically aren't really collectors. Right. Um, because they couldn't walk into a, a gallery now and get a painting because mm. of like the system that they have set up within the gallery world. So yeah, I, you know, but at the end of the day, it's, it's part of the ecosystem, I guess. And it's just how things work. I would have hoped that by this point that some things would have changed, mm. but um, I don't know if it's the same. I mean, sometimes I think about that and I'm like, you know, it's the younger artists that are really affected by it because if you have a collector that sold a painting for so much money and you're still struggling to pay your rent, then like, that's kind of like a horrible thing, you know? And you always just hope that they do the right thing and go through the gallery. So like, fine, resell it, make money, but let's just try to make it a wholesome transaction of sorts. You know, it sucks to like, one, like not even know where the piece is, you know, yeah. like yeah. somebody bought it. They want it to be private. Some yeah, Chinese billionaire the auction could house own it. Don't I don't know. But that, yeah, it's, so. for people listening, there's a process set up. If you, it's it's called flipping when someone buys an artwork and then sells it auction for uh, a higher price. But there is a, an yeah. art world 
kind of acceptance that you place the work back through the gallery that represents the artist so that there is a controlled resale there's documentation of where that work is going there is money going back to the gallery and going back to the artist so that as a system has been established that we all hope most people will follow yeah and sometimes people get divorced or they you know they i don't know they 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 lose their job or they have something yeah exactly so there are reasons why but i think the thing is about being responsible and being honest and transparent and kind of kind to the artist and to the gallery you know it's a kind of just a way of being a human being really um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but also i think like the first oh go ahead sorry no you talk you talk sorry well just say the first piece that went you know he was a big collector. He had a huge collection, like a warehouse full of work. But when he died, his kids were like, all right, meh. And so they ended up selling and auctioning off everything. And so, you you know, even though there's collectors out there with good intention, like you never know whether your family is going to, you know, want to make sure yeah, that yeah. Your, your legacy as a collector lives on. Yeah. How do you get your head around the fact that a painting that you made has sold? for so much money for 4.5 million does that blow you blow your mind or is that how how do you calculate that in your mind I try not to think about it like when it was happening people were texting me and I'm like working because I had a show coming up and I try to just be really like what's the word I just try not to care I don't know whether that makes sense or not I just try not to care you know because it's out of my control it's fascinating and in a way, I guess you you could feel flattered by it. Like there's these like two people battling it out to the very end. It's complimentary, um, yeah. It's definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I just you know I the, I try to wake up the next day and just like put it behind me. To be make honest, some toast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And make Stay some in toast. the present <laughs> in the present moment with your work. Yeah. Um, I, I've heard you reference lots of different cultural influences while you're making your work, like in the background. I know you do a lot of reading, and um, I've heard different authors mentioned, but also people like Reese Witherspoon and how you sort of liked the interiority of her because she was someone when she did Election, that early movie. Um, I was obsessed with her and the way that she would present. Well, exactly that, a bit like the the people you're painting, like this interior world and the battle that she would have with her characters. It's it's fascinating. Um, who, who have you been listening to or watching or, you know, reading during the making of your new work? Um, a lot of people. I have to say that my I waited on Reese Witherspoon <laughs> back Did when you? I was like 24 or 23. I think she might have been filming Sweet Alabama. Was she nice? She came and yeah, she was really nice. Did she tip? Um, she, she doesn't. I don't even remember. I hope I'm she sure did. she did. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd actually, you'd remember if she hadn't. You'd yeah, remember exactly. definitely. You'd remember if she, if she hadn't. hadn't. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, she must have been filming Sweet Alabama. But that's. But but outside of that, I was just you know, Legally Blonde was like my movie, you know, and I always mm-hmm. give that example of like growing up watching that and being able to identify with you know her her character. And just wanting that same reciprocity as a black woman and how we live in the world. Mm. Um, I use her as an example of that. Um, funny enough, I mean, I've, I'm like everyone else. I listen to a lot of criminal podcasts. Do you? But, um, yeah. <laughs> I do. I've been watching Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. As far as reading, there's this guy named Kevin Kwashi, and I'm totally obsessed with him. And everything he writes. And he just came out with a new book mm. called Utopia. And um, he talks about black aliveness. 
and I'm only on the first chapter because <laughs> I read at nighttime now and I fall asleep. I'm like, it takes me a year to get through the book. But um, let's see what else. I listen to a lot of books. I mean, honestly, like the what I'm listening to when I'm making work is like got nothing to do with the work because like I just started listening to Harry Potter this year. Like <laughs> I run out of podcasts to listen to, and somebody was like, "You should try Harry Potter." So, oh, my assistant said that, and I started listening Stephen, to Harry Potter. Stephen Fry read in that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I I think because I work so much for the mo- for half of the year, like seven days a week, usually ten hour days. I'm really into just like escaping. So Downton Abbey, like just, you know, <laughs> just stuff that makes you feel good. And Are you an Anglophile? I am. Really <laughs> good. Am. Good news. So the London show is quite a big deal then for that front as well. You're in Mayfair in London for an Anglophile. That's like amazing. It's funny. Yeah. So. What, what do you yeah, snack on uh, in the studio? Do you, do you eat while you're making work? I do. Um, I eat salt and vinegar chips with hot sauce on them. Do you? With hot sauce? Yeah. It's usually by, by the end of every deadline, my blood pressure is like on the higher side. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you pour it into the bag and then like shake it around? I have like a Tupperware container and I put the chips in and I dump it and then I shake it up. By the that time the I best... get to the crumbs though, I'm putting no, it in the, the bag and it's like, oh. Yes, love this. That's the best answer yeah. we've ever had. I love this. And oh ice cream. God. And I have this special water. I went to LA when I was in LA the last time for my show. I went to Air One. You guys know that? Like, no. it's kind of no. like a Whole Foods, but it's in LA, so it's cooler. <laughs> um, and they had this water in there that was oxygenated and it was like $12 for a liter or something. And I liked it so much. I started ordering <laughs> it by the case. So I drink my oxygenated water because I think it makes me smarter. And uh, <laughs> that's your extravagant moment. We love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> love. So anyway, we're going to get into our last questions now. Um, but you are an absolute joy. So we ask every guest that comes on if you could do an art heist and you could have any work of art in the world for your own collection to live with. Ooh. What would it be and why? Um. I want to say it'd be a piece by Anselm Kiefer. I love his work so much. It's like the first time I saw it, I was in Chelsea, probably in grad school. And it felt like a spiritual experience. Almost if like, you know, I don't know, as it, it, cause it feels like an artifact and it, yeah. but it feels very, like God made it almost, you know what I mean? Like it's just got this. Well, the scale as well with them works. Yeah, now. the scale. They don't make sense um, how they're on the wall. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It's 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 so fascinated by his work. So I think I would I would steal one of those guys. They're I remember a story well, I was so. told when I was studying history of art. Um, apparently restorers have a real nightmare with his work because often there are like live animals within the, the wood. Or, and there was a museum somewhere, which I won't actually name because I know which museum it was, that actually had a problem where the insects kind of left the work and like went into the air conditioning what? system or something like that. Yeah, it was quite a wild story. But they really That's are like, crazy. when you say like they're made by God, it's like it's kind of like nature <laughs> at its best. But it just makes me laugh the idea that like museums are so you know highly controlled with the temperature and all of these things i just love the idea that his work is alive (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> the other question we ask every guest is what is your favorite color which I thought you know if you think back to Panama with every room that had different colors maybe that might have inspired it well this year it's um what color it's like a burnt orange this year mm-hmm. it yeah, changes year every year I don't know if it changes every year but it used to be gray but not because of the skin color or anything, but like, I just usually, I just love gray. It went went from like maybe orange when I was a child to like army green, maybe when I was like in my twenties or whatever to gray to now it's like a burnt orange color. Mm. Does that enter the work a lot? Yeah, It has, it has in one painting and I kept that painting because it's my favorite color. So (laughs) I didn't sell that painting. But that color and mint green. So I made a painting where the background was mint green and the dress is like this brownish burned orange color. Um, And those are my two favorite colors together. Are there any parts of the painting that you really dread? Some artists say they hate doing feet. Some hate doing hands. (laughs) Some hate doing the horizon. Are there any bits that you're like, oh, God, here we go. I'm stuck on this for a while. I mean, we we interviewed Caroline Walker and she paints hospital scenes and she says that there would be like uh, a curtain and she'd be like, oh my God, I'm stuck on this curtain now, this green curtain. I have to now paint for X amount of hours, but I have to do it. And why do I do this to myself? I mean, sometimes I don't feel like painting clothes, Oh, which is crazy because I have mm. to paint clothes. I said after I finish these motorcycles, I don't ever want to paint a motorcycle again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you've done two, but- yeah. Mm-hmm. but I've done two <laughs> maybe I don't know it's either grass or like if it's just the figures mm. then I don't have one but my well, actually my least favorite thing to paint on the figure is like the clavicle mm. I hate painting the clavicle the collarbone the collarbone yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's like I don't know it it takes me longer than it should it doesn't make any sense because it's like barely there. And I think that's why it's so hard because it's like barely there and it's, yeah. it's so nuanced, but painting the collarbone, it gets on my goddamn nerves. <laughs> Interesting. Never, never so we're going to see either. a lot. We hardly are going to see the collarbone. And most of the characters will be <laughs> high shirted, high collared or, or the area sort of, <laughs> <laughs> sort of covered over. Now, you know, now, you know, no, I know. Oh that's God. great. Um, how do you title your works just before we, we wrap up? Because one of my favorite paintings by you is the steel girder one, which has got a kind of, uh, it's almost like a reference. Well, it is a reference to the Charles um, Ebbett's famous 1932 photograph um, of a construction beam kind of high in the air with this amazing figure sat on a green. I just love that color green. It's so mm, rich. But the title for that work is so beautiful. It's um, if you surrendered to the air, you could ride it. Um, from 2019 like and it got me thinking about words and like how you title your paintings because that's just one of the best titles for one of the best paintings like ever (laughs) yeah that one is actually a a line from a Toni Morrison book um so many times I have named a few myself but you know I'm a visual person so that's you know that's my thing but um I read a lot of poetry and just in reading, I find, you know, sentences that are parts of sentences that just fit. And I may not even have the painting made, but I know that it would make a great title for something. So I write it down and I keep it. Um, but I use a lot of um, Black female writers. Um, 
in the beginning, like maybe the last show, I think maybe uh, Toni Morrison and um, Gwendolyn Brooks, Lucille Clifton, mm -hmm. um, poets, um, David White, who's also one of my favorite poets, but mostly through poetry and reading, I like collect words and sentences and piece them together, change them around some way. Mm. And my the... sister sometimes names them for me. Oh, really? Your sister? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. She so was she... really good at it for like the first five years, but lately she's been off. So like she's, 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 her feelings are hurt because I didn't like any of them, <laughs> but um Maybe she'll, maybe she'll get the magic back soon. But lately, it's just been me and my poetry. Well, so she would come into the studio and you'd be like, right, you can name this one. What do you think? And she'd come up I with would something. send her like progress pictures um, over the phone and she would come back. Like she named um, Miss Everything. Yeah. Um, That's the one, the National Portrait Gallery Prize yeah. one, one. Yeah. Yeah. She named Innocent You, Innocent Me. Um so many like she named she named a lot of them yeah like from 2014 to let's say 20 2019 she named a lot of them nice it's good well, to work you know it's like it's good to keep it in the family and you know we have something we can share together yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 what is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your work i don't know or the advice that you would give oh yeah you can turn artist. it on his head yeah. Yeah. My advice is to simply never quit. If you want it, go for it. Always check with somebody who you can trust to make sure you're not living a pipe dream. Mm. <laughs> like you have the skill. Mm -hmm. But just never quit. Because I always say the world is full of quitters. So eventually you rise to the top. <laughs> Like, had I given up at 35 when I was like, I could have been like, oh, I'm 35 now. I shouldn't be doing this anymore. I need to try to find a quote unquote real job. Mm. Then I would have never had the opportunity to paint, you know, the first African-American first lady. I mean, you know, it's just you really just have to stay focused on what you want in your life and never stop pursuing it. Thank God you didn't. Are we going to see uh, a Venus and Serena Williams painting you sort of hinted at that earlier that you wanted to if that was the commission you were considering i don't know if they would let me i certainly would though love right we're putting that out there <laughs> putting that out i there. tried to like i like saw serena at the lacma gala and i was like hey by the way if i wasn't gonna paint michelle like i was gonna choose you but i don't think she knew who i was <laughs> right you've got to manifest like, it exactly. amy and it will happen maybe manifest she listens to talk happen. art you never know she might she might yeah, hear you're it in a crowd a big, of people big and you're like it's just somebody else is trying to say something to me right now so right 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 but, um, That's yeah really funny. i think they're powerful i think they're so powerful oh, yeah me too incredible. extraordinary what human beings we what they've them. done for incredible. tennis and women and sports is amazing yeah mm. Thank you so much for being so generous and open and um, just like you are with your work. Um, it's been such a privilege to meet you because Russ and I wanted to meet you when we first started the podcast all those years ago in 2018. So like yeah, we, to we finally were be here with you. Yeah, yeah we, we love yeah. you so much. And I was I running also... from you, Russell. I was, I was so like, so burned out from like 
that whole year, I was yeah. like running for me. Yeah, <laughs> we've really caught running, up. We've like, caught you now. We've, <laughs> <laughs> we've trapped you into the tall cart layer. You're you're in. But uh, no, thank you so much. So, so your upcoming show, The World We Make, will be opening in October the 12th, is it? Yeah, and it runs um, until the 23rd of December. So great. it goes all the way up until Christmas. And it's free, it's free to get into. It's in the yep. center of London. And there's um, really small-scale paintings alongside monumental portraits. So you get a kind of real um, you know, view of all the different kinds of work that, that Amy makes. And um, it's the first ever exhibition in Europe, so make sure you see it. And um, you're coming over to London, aren't you, for the opening? Yes, I'll be in London town on Thursday. Nice after tomorrow. Well, we will make sure we come to the opening and give you a big hug. Um, Seriously? Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> You'll run away from us. <laughs> you will run away. run away from you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amy Gerald. And um, Thank you. you're, you're on Instagram. And by the way, you're also a style icon in my eyes because I love the knitwear you have. I love your style. <laughs> Generally, I'm a big, big fan of you sartorially. Um, yeah, so Thank you can you. follow Amy. Your, your Instagram's at Amy Sherald. Yeah, it's at A Sherald. A Sherald. The letter A yeah. and then S H E R A L D. Cool. Amazing. And, and you can also go to at Houserworth and Houserworth.com and um, just Google. And then you can add George and Wheezy Official, my dogs. Oh, of yes. course. We, we talked about that. I mean, that is, I mean, for me, as soon as I discovered that you had George and Wheezy's Instagram, uh, I was, I was that, I was locked in. That's it. You're just the best ever. Anyone who has a dog Instagram for me is an icon. He, do, he doesn't yeah. like me because I've got a cat Instagram. I just got kittens. And um, at, <laughs> you can follow my kittens at window oh and doorway. Are we plugging the kittens? <laughs> I let them out today. I let them out today into the whole house and they've been running around what? through this interview. All I can hear is like people, oh, like uh, not people, sorry, kittens, like running by the door the whole way through the interview. It's hilarious. I just fostered two kittens for a week. I found them in the parking lot in my studio. It was crazy. Oh. They're Are so keep- sweet. I wish I could have kept them. I oh, you're not keeping them? The do- do- the no. Weasel. Yeah. Foster and Weezy yeah. weren't we, like I them. mean, I live in a condo. We can only have like, we have the max dogs at three. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. And my and my, my partner, Kevin, is like, no. Like, no as well. <laughs> you're always trying to save something, Amy. Like, don't, we're not going to keep these guys. <laughs> it's great to be a foster, though. I think being fostering animals is a brilliant thing. And the RSPCA in the UK do great work with that. Um, yeah. Thank you so, so much. Can't wait to see you in London. And um, we'll be you. back very soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com